good morning. It is good to see you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. Before we dive in, though, I just want to take a minute and uh, invite you to come and join with us uh, this, this afternoon uh, at our beach baptism. Some have asked, well, well, why are we doing a baptism at the beach when we have a perfectly good baptistry here? Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you've asked. Uh, you know, throughout the history of uh, the church in general, and even um, the way that baptism is practiced in most of the world by most believers today, uh, the baptisms don't take place inside the room, uh, but they're actually out in public places. This is a public profession of faith where we can identify uh, with the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, this evening, we're going to gather at 4.30 there in New Smyrna Beach. Uh, we're going to baptize uh, a lot of people, uh, and we're going to proclaim the gospel to those who are who are watching, who are there from our church, and to those who aren't there from our church. And so uh, I hope that you'll come and you'll celebrate uh, with us. And maybe you say, hey, I need to be baptized. I need to, to take that, uh, that first step of obedience following Jesus in baptism. Man, we would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, I'd love to have that conversation with you, whether it be uh, for this evening or whether it be at another time. I, I got an email earlier uh, that uh, we, we have over two dozen people over the last few weeks who have said, hey, I want to be baptized. Many of them have said, I want to be baptized at the beach, uh, but we already on October 8th, we already have baptisms scheduled for our service here, uh, which means that the Lord is active, right? The Lord is doing much. That's exciting. Uh, and so if that's you, if, if you need to be baptized, we'd love to get to celebrate that with you as well. So I hope that you'll, uh, you'll let us do that. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, maybe you're already there. Uh, if not, 1 Peter right before 2 Peter um, is where you'll find that. Uh, but as, as you turn there, I want you to think about some of these numbers. So uh, I read an article this week um, from a news source that I don't typically read, so I'm not endorsing it. In fact, I, I try to stay away from things called Jezebel, but Jezebel.com uh, had an article uh, from 2007. And, and listen, listen to some of these numbers. In 2007, the United States as a whole spent $39 billion on cosmetic products. Second place was Japan, spending $26 billion. And then in third, fourth, and fifth were France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. In 2007, 18% of cosmetic surgeries worldwide occurred in the United States. Brazil accounted for 13%. In Seoul, South Korea in 2007, 20% of women ages 19 to 49 had had some kind of cosmetic procedure. Now, what we learned from that now many years later is that none of it buys happiness. 2007, the United States spent $39 billion on cosmetic products and in that same year, when looking at different trends and different statistics to rank each country based on happiness, the United States ranked first in money spent on cosmetic products and 23rd on happiness. Japan ranked second on money spent and 90th in happiness. 
In fact, that Jezebel.com article, this was the title of the article, Americans spend billions on beauty products but are not very happy. We understand that there's a problem here. And what we try to do, whether it be in, with cosmetic products or other things, is we, one, maybe we try to throw money at it. Or two, we try to make the problem look like it's not there. Right? We try to make everything look really good on the outside and then ignore what's happening on the inside. But so oftentimes what we do is we try to solve spiritual problems with physical solutions. And we do this in every area of life, including marriage. And so here in 1 Peter 3, Peter's going to call our attention to marriage, keeping with uh, this theme that he's had over the last few passages. And we're going to see this, that godly marriages are kingdom-focused and other-oriented. Godly marriages are kingdom-focused and other-oriented. So look with me here at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Uh, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word? Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we read this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge this morning that Jesus is king. And Father, we want Jesus to be king of our lives and of our hearts. So Father, I, I pray even now that through your word that, that you would accomplish that. God, that you would, you would mold us and you would shape us into people who, who know and love and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The goal of godly marriages are kingdom-focused and other-oriented. You know, I, I was sharing with someone this week about the passage that, that I was preaching. That we were preaching through First Peter, and this is the passage that we're going to be on. And they said, well, why do you keep pick, picking books where these things come up? And I said, because I, I like living on the edge. Right? I, I'm, I'm dangerous. I like, I like living uh, a dangerous life. But this passage, I, I hope that you'll see this morning, it is so good uh, for us. So as we, we look at this passage, the, the first truth we see is this, is the goal of godly living. The goal of godly living. Here's, here, here's the truth, right? Godliness is of great value. Godliness is of great value. It's the, the path to blessing. If, you, if you're going to experience God's blessing, it's going to run right through uh, godliness. The, that apart from godliness, you, you cannot experience God's blessing. 
And so Peter, he's, he's calling us all through this book that we would live godly and holy lives. Now, when we, we come to the scriptures, I want to help us think through all right, what's the best way to read the Bible? How, how can you read and apply the Bible in the best way? And I, I used to say it this way. I used to say that the best way or, or what you need to remember to read the Bible is that context is king, that there were three rules, context, context, context. And I, I still believe that, but I think we need to nuance a little bit. So here are the two rules or the, the true truths that you need to remember if you're going to read and apply the Bible well to your life. Uh, the first one is, is that context matters. You've got to know what's happening before the passage. You've got to know what's happening around the passage. You've got to know why the author's writing, all of those things. So context matters. But here's the second one. Context matters in Jesus is king. Right, so context matters and Jesus is king. And, and here's why it's important to remember that Jesus is king. It's important to remember that Jesus is king first because this book that we are reading, this is not primarily Peter's words. These are God's words. Right, this is God's word to us. This is God, in fact, the way the Bible says it is it's as if Jesus is speaking to us. And so if Jesus is king, then what that means is that we sit under his authority. We let him say what he would have us to hear. So Jesus is king. We submit to his authority, but also we understand that because Jesus is king, that the scriptures are constantly pointing us to Jesus. Right, the scriptures are constantly showing us what we need to know about Jesus. So this passage is not first and foremost about wives and husbands. This passage in first, is first and foremost about King Jesus and the gospel that he has given to us. And, and so if we're going to understand this passage, first we want to keep in mind that Jesus is king. Next, let's understand the context. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, then we've been walking through this book of 1 Peter. We have seen that Peter's writing to this group of suffering Christians. And over the last few weeks, what he's done is he's turned his attention to groups that are suffering, to groups that are prone to suffer. And in fact, what he does is you can almost think of it as a funnel. So he goes from the really general the very broad to the very specific. So a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at what Peter has to say to uh, Christian citizens who are living under the rule and under, under the reign uh, of an evil emperor. And do you remember what he said? He said, honor the emperor. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And then last week, Pastor Mike, he, he preached, did such a, a great job on what is a very difficult text. All right, what if you are... What if you're a slave and you have a, an evil master? So Pastor Mike showed us what Peter had to say there. And then today, he, he's getting a little more specific and he's saying, all right, what does it look like for wives to live godly lives? And what does it look like for husbands to live godly lives? And the reason he addresses wives specifically is because... It, in the, the day that Peter's writing, women had no rights and they were often mistreated by society at large, but they were often mistreated by unloving husbands. And so Peter's writing to them to give them counsel and to give them encouragement. And this is what he says. Look at verse one. He says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so he says, wives. And he says, be subject to, he's saying, submit to your husbands. Now understand that, that this submission, this is a voluntary submission. And he's speaking to wives and he says, be subject to your own husbands. So he's not saying women be, submit to men everywhere or, or even wives submit to, no, he's saying wives submit to your own husbands husbands, right? Submit to the one that the Lord has given to you and, and who he has given you 
2. Now, there's a, a clear instruction for wives here, but I think that there's just as clear of an implicit instruction to husbands, and it's this. Husbands should make it easy. Right? Husbands should be men worth their wives following. Right? Worth their wives trusting. It just says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, then he anticipates this objection. It's almost as if he anticipates someone saying, but, but what if their husband isn't a believer? Well, look at what he says. He says, so that even if some do not obey the word. Now, what is the word? The word is the gospel. He's saying, even if some have not believed the gospel, if some have not been saved, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So what do wives do if, if your husband is not a believer? Well, then you submit because through that, they, though they may not have obeyed the word, they may be won without a word. See, sometimes a godly lifestyle is more effective at displaying the gospel than an argument ever will be. So it's almost as if Peter's saying to wives in this situation, he's saying, look, instead of a strong argument, you need a strong life. Or that that your, your godliness, that it would overflow and that your husband would see it and that he would find it irresistible, right? That he would say, I need that. So I'm sure that in a room this size, that, that maybe there's some wives who are here and they wish their husbands would be here, but uh, their husbands have yet to believe. Well, God's counsel to you, his encouragement to you is to keep loving your husband, to, to keep following your husband. Maybe there's husbands here who, who you're here, but your wife isn't. You, you wish that your wife were here, right? God's counsel to you is to keep leading and keep loving her well. Now, in verse 2, we, we see an important word here in First Peter. He says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He used it in verse 1 as well. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. This, this word conduct, it's Peter's favorite word to really talk about way of life. So it's Peter's favorite word to, to talk about the way you live your life, literally the, the way you live your life according to a certain set of convictions. Right, we all live our lives according to a certain set of convictions, uh, and those convictions can vary from person to person. But Peter's saying, look, they're going to see the way you live your life according to the convictions that you hold. And as you live a godly life with those convictions, those, those convictions that the gospel is true and that Jesus saves, that, that will become more clear and more evident and more irresistible uh, to those who see it. Now he goes on there in verse 2 and he says this, he says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now we are embarrassed. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to how many great English Bible translations we have. We have so many good English Bible translations. I use the ESV. I jokingly refer to it as the Ethan Standard Version because that's the, the version that I use. But, but I grew up using the New King James Version or the CSB is a great one. The NIV, uh, the best Bible translation is the one you read, right? We have a great, great wealth of riches when it comes to English Bible translations that are so good and so accurate. But commentators are pretty well in agreement that the ESV and some other translations have missed it whenever they've translated this work, this word as respectful. So when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In fact, that word respectful, literally, what it means is with fear. So when they see your conduct with fear. Now, based on the grammar and some other context clues, 
What we know is that Peter's not talking about wives fearing your husbands. Instead, what he's talking about is because of your fear of the Lord. Our Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But Juan Sanchez, he helpfully notes on these verses, he says, fear of God frees the Christian wife from overvaluing her unbelieving husband's approval or disapproval, and it frees her to conduct herself as a Christian around him. The, the fear of God is important not just for Christian wives. The fear of God is important for Christians in general. Because if we really fear God, then we will live for his approval, not the world's approval. Right? We won't care what anyone else says about us, what anyone else thinks about us, because all that matters is what has God said about me? Right? What does God think about me? And in Jesus Christ, God has called me forgiven. Right? In Jesus Christ, God has called me loved. In Jesus Christ, God has called me redeemed and forgiven and accepted. Now, some will take these verses and they will misuse and they will manipulate and they will distort these first two verses in different ways that are very different from one another, but both equally as wrong. So there are some who will take these verses and they will say, look at how old-fashioned the Bible is. Then there are some sick and twisted men who will take these verses and will use this as a club for their wives rather than as a comfort. And they will say, you should submit to me because the Bible says that. They are both equally wrong. See, God has made men and women complementary. Some, some people will say like salt and pepper. I prefer like bacon and collard greens, right? They just give each other flavor, right? Can I get a witness? And if you don't like collard greens, uh, there'll be a time of repentance later. Uh, but God has made men and women complementary. That is, they complement one another. Understand this. God has made every relationship with roles, and different roles do not mean different value. In fact, differences highlight and complement our equality. Right? That we need each other. Husbands need wives. Wives need husbands. I'll tell you this. Without Anna, there is no Ethan. Right? That, that we need one another. And so Peter, he, he doesn't call wives to submit because they're less than, because understand this, right? Men and women both deserve full dignity and full equality from one another, right? We have both been made in the image of God. And so Peter doesn't call wives to submit because they're less than, but because God has designed marriage to flourish when husbands lead, here is the number one reason why marriages do not flourish, because husbands do not lead. The, the number one problem that we have in our culture today is we have men who refuse to lead. Now, the culture, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity, and that might be a problem. I am far more concerned about abdicated masculinity. Right, that, that men refuse to lead uh, according to God's word and God's ways. Now, we have plenty of men who want to act like leaders, but I'm convinced of this, that we have a lot of men who are really just boys who can shave. 
right? We, we have a lot of men who are failing to live like men, and we have problems now. So if we would live like men, I think the world would be a better place. But I also want to be clear about this. There are clear times when wives should not submit to their husbands. If your husband is being abusive, if your husband is leading you to fear or putting you in danger or anything similar to any of that, then God's will for you is that you would leave, right? That you would seek safety. You would call, we would, we would love to help you do just that, right? We would love to help you find safety. We have multiple law enforcement officers here today to help get you safe and, and to help take care of whatever that problem may be. So, so don't think you have to stay because you don't have any options because here at Central, I want you to know, like we care for you. Right? We care about you and we, we want to help you. We want to make sure that you are safe. Now, husbands, if what I just said makes you nervous, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear it well. Good. Right? Good. I'm, I'm being serious. It's not a joke. I'm, I'm being dead serious. Right? We would love to help you get the help that you need as well. Right? We, would, we would love to, to help you figure out why you feel like that is the, the right thing to do because it's not. Because you're not acting as a man. You're not acting strong. Right? You're acting like a boy. And so we would love to help you get the help that you need. But wives, don't, don't think for a second that you're on your own or that you are alone or that we won't help you or that you can't find help because we would love to do just that. We would love to help you. We see here in First Peter this goal of godly living. Next we see this. We see the beauty that never fades. The beauty that never fades. You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The problem is the beholder is often wrong. Right? The, the beholder is often confused. I, I've been told that I have a face only a mother can love. Right? Uh, uh, and... Uh, I don't know why y'all are laughing, right? I uh, have spent a lot of time working through that. Um, the, the problem is, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but oftentimes, the beholder is wrong. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, the beholder values the wrong things. The beholder puts an emphasis on the wrong things. And so what Peter does here is he warns against fake beauty. Look at verse three. He says, do not let your adorning be external. Now that word adorning, it's this idea of outward decoration. The, the greatest time of the year is coming up. November 1st begins Christmas. Uh, and some of you disagree. And I, I love Jesus more than you, right? I don't know what to, I love the coming of Jesus. I, I can't help that. Uh, but what that means is that soon Christmas lights will start going up. I was driving down I-4 this week and I saw a trailer that said, wehangchristmaslights.com. Right, so Christmas lights are coming. And my family, we love to go drive around and look at these Christmas lights, but maybe you've had this experience where you drive by and this big, beautiful display of Christmas lights, you think, man, that's great. And then you drive by that same house during the day and you think, that's not what I thought it looked like. Right, that, that's, that's not what I, I thought was going to be there. And then we, we notice the temporary lights rather than the permanent home. 
And so oftentimes what happens with beauty is we notice the temporary rather than the imperishable. And we value the temporary over the things that will last, over the things that, that will not walk away. And so Peter here, he, he says, do not let your adorning be external. And then he gives a list of, of three, uh, three ways that your adorning might be external. He says the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. First time I read that, I thought, you're a brave man, Peter, right? <laughs> like uh, you are just meddling now. But what he's doing here is he's actually doing something really important. So he, he warns against this adorning, but you gotta understand the cultural moment that Peter's in. This braiding hair and this fine jewelry and this clothing that you wear was true of Peter's day. It's also true of our day. Peter is warning against marks of wealth that people valued. And so apparently, even in this group of believers who were suffering, there were some wealthy enough for instruction. And the context leads us to believe that what Peter is doing here is he's saying, look, some of the wives who, who are, he's writing to, they think that if they can just look pretty enough or act wealthy enough, then their husbands will love them more and their husbands will come to love Jesus. But what Peter says is that's not the case. See, some were tempted to believe that they could win their husband's faith through outward beauty. But Peter's saying not so fast. He's not saying that braiding your hair or jewelry or clothes are bad. What he's saying is don't put your hope in those things. Right? He's saying, wives, don't, don't think that, that you can do this or you can do that and that it's going to make your husband love you more and that it'll make him love Jesus. Now, wives aren't the only ones who are in danger of this. Right? Uh, husbands at times believe, well, if I do this, my wife will love me more. If I do that, my wife will love me more. If you don't believe me, you should go to a church league softball game, right? There are guys out there and they think, well, if I hit a home run, my wife's gonna love me and I'm gonna go pro on the church soft league tour, right? Or, or you go to a kid's little league game and dads are getting way more excited than they, I'm guilty of that, by the way, like I'm preaching myself here, right? But or we think, well, if I just work hard enough, I get this, my wife will love me. If I, I work hard enough, I do that. What Peter's saying is don't put your hope in that. Don't put your trust in that. He said, verse four, he shows us where to put our hope. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So where do you place value in what doesn't perish? But this, verse four, this is the alternative to outward beauty. The alternative to outward beauty is the hidden person of the heart marked by a gentle and quiet spirit. This thing that in God's sight is very precious. I, I don't know about you, but ladies, I, I hope that it is your goal that you would have what God calls as very precious. Because you are. Right? He has made you to be loved by him and to be known by him and to be called precious by him. Now in verse five, he, he gives us uh, an example of what he's talking about. More specific, look at verse five. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. He gives us his example of holy women from the Old Testament. And what we need to know, the most important thing about these women was that they hoped in God. Right? That, that's what 
Peter's pulling out and he's saying, now how did this look? How did this work out in their lives? Well, one way it looked, worked out in their lives is that they submitted to their husbands, trusting that as the Lord had given their husbands to them, he had given them to their husbands and that the Lord knew what he was doing. Now in verse six, you have this even more specific example where he, he zeroes in on Sarah. He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah followed Abraham. It says that she even called him Lord. Now, this title Lord isn't like when we say Yahweh is Lord or Jesus is Lord or something like that, but it's more of that Sarah was confessing that, that Abraham was her leader, that she was willing to follow him. In fact, where this happens at in the Old Testament is interesting. Peter's calling us back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. And where Sarah calls Abraham Lord is actually, she has just heard the angel make the promise to Abraham that he is going to make him a father of many nations, and she chuckles. She laughs. And some people read that, and they'll think, well, Sarah's being sarcastic, or she's, she's not trusting, or whatever. What Peter's saying, no, is that she was believing, that she, she was trusting. In fact, she did this in private, and what she's doing, and she's, she's honoring Abraham in private, even though she didn't understand God's plan. So what Peter's saying here, he's saying, wives, when you honor your husbands, you're confirming your faith as authentic. You're saying that, that you are a daughter of Sarah. As you do good and you, you do not fear. See, what, what Peter's doing here through, throughout this, really this entire letter, but this section, is he, he's giving us the idea that the Lord isn't calling wives to submit to husbands, but he's calling them to trust God. So, so the, first, the first thing is not wives, submit to your husbands. So the first thing is trust God. And as you trust God, then honor and follow your husbands. Right? He, he's calling wives to, to cultivate a love for what God loves and, and develop an inner beauty that values the gospel and godliness above all. See, honoring your husband is the fruit of a life that is committed to Jesus. And if you've committed to Jesus, if you're following Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus with your eternity, then you can trust him with your marriage. Or that Jesus knows what he's doing in your marriage. And it's his will, it's God's will, that you would have a joy-filled and a life-giving and a good marriage. Some of you here today are wondering, is there any hope for my marriage? And here is the truth. Jesus is alive, and because Jesus is alive, there's always hope. Or because Jesus is alive, your marriage is not beyond saving. In fact, it's God's will that you would have a good marriage because God is more committed to your marriage than you are committed to your marriage. Right? God is more committed to your joy than you are committed to your joy. And God's more committed to your happiness than you are committed to your happiness. And God knows what he's doing. And so if you can trust him with your eternity, then you can certainly trust him with your marriage. And so Peter says here, he says, he shows us this goal of godly living and this beauty that never fades. And then finally, he calls us to see this love that seeks understanding. Love that, that seeks understanding. Peter spends the, the bulk of this passage addressing wives because they're the ones prone to suffer. Just the address slaves and just as he had addressed citizens. But he does something different here. He addresses husbands who, who are the ones who are in danger of making their wives suffer. And it's the, the first time in this section that he's addressed the one who is prone to suffering or prone to cause the suffering. He, he doesn't address the emperor. He, he doesn't address masters, but here he addresses husbands. Verse seven, he says, husbands, 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, what he's saying here is to live knowledgeably with your wives. And understand that this is not analytical knowledge. This is applied knowledge. It's not cold or cerebral knowledge that you could pass an exam on your wife's order from Starbucks. It's not that you would know her favorite color and that you would know this about her, you'd know her birthday and her social, it's not any of that. No, this kind of knowledge that he's talking about here, this is applied knowledge. This is knowledge that leads you to love your wife more and to care for her better. And this, this honors a wife and it recognizes the truth about her. Look at verse seven, it says, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now what Peter's doing here is he's acknowledging, he's recognizing that oftentimes that wives have lesser physical strength. And what was certainly true in this day is they had less social status, less of a social standing in the world. And so what Peter's doing here is he's saying, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, what this means is this should lead husbands to relate to, to protect, to serve, and to honor their wives accordingly. Right? That is our responsibility as husbands. Now, Christian husbands, we're to, to lead our wives with a deep knowledge of who they are that leads to a sacrificial love that allows their wives, allows our wives to flourish as we love and as we care for them. What this means is, husbands, we have to be students of our wives. Understand this. It is not your wife's responsibility to study you. It is your responsibility to study her. Right? It is not your wife's responsibility to get to know you better. It is your responsibility to get to know her better so that you can love her more so that she will want to know you more. Right? So that she will want to know you better. In other words, you should make it easy for her to follow you. Right? You should be a constant student in the school of your wife. And this is a school that you never graduate from. Right? And I, I mean that in the most honest way possible. Anna and I have been married for 14, going on 15 years. And in some ways, it feels like we have always been married. In other ways, it feels like we're just getting started, right? Like we're just, but here, here's what I've learned about Anna, is that loving Anna before she was a mom, loving Anna as a mom are completely different things, right? L loving Anna as a mom to a nine-year-old and a eight-year-old and a six-year-old and a two-year-old completely different than loving her as a mom to an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and a one-year-old, right? That, that as the world is changing around her, she is changing. And it's my responsibility as her husband to figure out how I can love her well through it. And I would love to tell you that I am the perfect husband, but I'm going to let her do that. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm not really going to do that, right? I am not the perfect husband and husbands, neither are you. And if you think you are, ask your wife. Right? She will tell you that you are not. And so what that means is that you have room to improve. I have room to improve. And this is serious work. 
It's serious work because your wife deserves a good husband. Your wife deserves a loving and fulfilling marriage. But it's also serious work because if you do not love your wife well, then you should not expect that the Lord is going to answer your prayers. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you fail to love your wife the way Peter shows here, you should not be surprised when God does not answer your prayer. Maybe, in fact, maybe the reason that God isn't answering your prayers is because you aren't loving your wife well. It's because you aren't caring for her and shepherding her and leading her. Sam Storms, he, he's a pastor and a commentator. He wrote this on this passage. He said, callous disregard for one's wife will close God's ear to our prayers and turn his face against us. In other words, God will not honor you if you do not honor your wife. God will not answer your prayers if you are not honoring your wife. See, godly marriages are kingdom-focused and other-oriented. I was reading about this passage this week, and I love what one commentator, the way he described this passage is he described it as a dance. Now, I'm not a dancer. I'm not good at dancing. But what I know about dancing is that in dancing that one leads and one follows. Husbands are to lead their wives well, and wives follow their husbands knowing that they are loved and protected. So if marriage is a dance, then we have to know our steps well. So for wives, love what Claire Smith, who wrote a book on these things, she said this, she said, submission looks different in every marriage. She goes on to say this, that broadly speaking, a wife expresses her submission by respecting her husband and welcoming and accepting and honoring his distinctive responsibility to lead and care for her and for the family. What this means is that the submission, it looks different in every family. It looks different in every situation. It looks different in every context. The, the point, though, is the wives that you, you would submit to and that you would follow your husband's lead when and where appropriate. Husbands, we're going to know our steps well. And what this means is that we need to be men worth following who love and lead our wives and our families well. Or that maybe, maybe the reason that your wife struggles to follow you is because you're not worth following. Right? It's because you, you're, not, you're not doing, you're not being who God has called you to be. And husbands, I, I want to give you some homework. This is your responsibility uh, but I'm giving your wife permission right now that if you have not asked this question by the time you go to bed tonight, she is allowed to look at you and say, the pastor told me to ask you this, all right? Husbands, he, he, here's your homework. Do you have your pens ready? Before this day is done, I want you to ask your wife how you can love her and lead her better. And for some of you, for some of us, that may mean that we need to do some repenting. It may mean that we need to do some praying. It may mean that we need to ask the Lord to do some deep and some serious soul searching. But I promise you that God's going to honor that. You might say, Ethan, why does God care about my marriage? 
especially in the midst of suffering, like there's all kinds of other things. Why does he care about my marriage? Well, he cares about your marriage because he's committed to you. He's committed to your joy. He's committed to your life. He's committed to your happiness. But he's also committed to your marriage because what he's told us in other parts of his word is that your marriage should be the best picture of the gospel that you see. That your marriage should be the best picture of the gospel that your kids see, that your neighbors see, that your coworkers see. He says, husbands, that you're to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. And so, husbands, I wonder if, if I ask the people who know you best, if I ask them, is, is he loving his wife the way Christ loved the church, what would they say? If I asked your wife if you were loving her the way Christ loved the church, what would she say? But wives, that same passage there in Ephesians where it says that marriage is a picture of the gospel, it says, wives, you're to follow your husband the way that that the church follows Jesus. If, if I were to ask those who know you best, if, you, if you're following your husband the way that the church is to follow Jesus, I wonder what they would say. If I were to, if I were to ask your husband, what, what, what would he say? It, see, your marriage matters because the gospel matters. Your marriage is to be a, a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and here's, here's what's so true about this is that apart from Jesus, you cannot have a marriage like this. That Jesus is the one who empowers you as husbands to lead your wives well and as wives to, to follow the lead of your husbands well. See, without Jesus, you can't do it. Without Jesus, you can't have a marriage like this. And so, so I, I don't w- want you to think that that, well, if I just change the outward appearance of my marriage, then everything will be okay. The reason your marriage is struggling, or the reason that your marriage does struggle, or the reason that your marriage will struggle, is not because you don't know the right behavior. It's because you have a heart that seeks your own good before anything else. It's because you have a heart that is made an idol out of comfort. You have a heart that is made an idol out of your own pleasure or out of your own wants or your own needs or your own desires. And it's only Jesus that can change that heart. And so, so maybe you're struggling, your marriage is struggling right now. Maybe your marriage is struggling because your soul is struggling. Maybe your marriage is struggling because Jesus isn't the center of your marriage. You are. And the only way to get yourself out of the center of your marriage is to put Jesus there. And so maybe, maybe this morning you need to trust Christ. You need to trust Jesus. That's the, the first step in a God-honoring marriage. You, you need to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to let him change you and save you. And then you can be the husband that God's called you to be. Then you can be the wife that, that God has called you to be. Maybe you just need to take some time as we respond, as we sing, We're going to sing a song that says, I need thee, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Maybe maybe you just need to write where you are, confess. God, I need you for my marriage. I need you in my marriage. I need you to save my marriage. Your marriage might be in a really good place right now. 
You might think my marriage feels really healthy. My marriage feels really strong. The only reason your marriage is healthy, the only reason your marriage is strong is because of Jesus. And so maybe the way you respond now is God, thank you for where we are. And God, protect our marriage because we need you. We need you in the middle of our marriage. You know, husbands, maybe the way that you lead your wife over the next few minutes, maybe it's right where you are, you take her hand and you pray for her and you pray for your marriage. Maybe you ask the Lord just right where you are to, to bless your marriage, to protect your marriage, and to strengthen your marriage. At the end of this service, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing. At the end of the service, our Next Steps team will be down front. Maybe say, I need to trust Jesus. Hey, come, come talk to our Next Steps team. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you and hear about what the Lord's doing in your life. Say, I need, to, I need to be baptized. And we'd love to talk with you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, thank you that you fight for our marriages, maybe even when we don't feel like fighting for them ourselves. Father, thank you for the great blessing, the great picture of the gospel that marriage can be. And Father, I, I pray that, that our marriages will be strong. Father, I pray that our marriages will be blessed by you. Father, I pray that you would help husbands to lead their wives well and that you would help wives to, to follow their husbands well. And uh, Father, I, I pray that maybe where there are broken marriages in this room today, that you would heal them. Father, I pray maybe for the husband who has never prayed with his wife that right now would be the first time that he prays for his wife. He prays with his wife. Father, I pray for those who maybe they know that they need to trust you, they know that they need to come to you. Father, I pray that they would come to you even now, that you would save them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.